Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Catherine Ryan, and here we draw on my conversations with experts on Nine to Noon to help you navigate family life. Our next guest says all parents want the same thing for their children, but they want them to be successful and of good character. But often they don't elaborate on what they mean. Educator and author Lance King has worked with tens of thousands of students, both here and internationally. His book is The Importance of Failing Well. The aim of it is to provide practical information for parents whose children may be struggling to achieve at school or who may be lacking in self-confidence. Lance King says children thrive when they're well supported and have the confidence to respond well and to cope with challenges. I spoke recently to Lance who's been working in this field for more than a couple of decades. The book that we're talking about is basically a distillation of um, my, all my education career. I've been working for 24 years uh, with groups of students, both here and in about 33 other countries, um, helping them to improve their success in several areas. And the, the work that I've done has, I think, helped them to develop better resilience and the ability to cope with difficulties and overcome challenges and to um, help them to improve their academic success. So, so you, I, sorry. you've got a Master's in Education, I think, and, and a focus on psychology, which is interesting. Did your classroom teach before moving into the specialist work? Or? Um, I was um, teaching food technology in the polytechnic sector hmm. from about 85 to 90, and then I moved into teacher training within the polytech sector at Waikato Polytechnic, working with the professional development team teaching teachers and then in 95 I set up my business The Art of Learning and I've been teaching the processes of thinking and learning since 95. And where in the world do you go quite quite literally? Well almost everywhere I mean I just I'm, I'm only um, I landed about 36 hours ago from England and I leave on next Monday for a trip which is six weeks long, which covers eight countries. What is the appetite for? What are people seeking? Well, a lot of the work that I've been doing in recent years has been in the IB group of schools, the International Baccalaureate Group, and they have a program that I designed called ATL, which is Approaches to Learning, which is a 21st century skills program, and it's mandatory in all IB schools now. There's about 5,000 IB schools in 156 countries or something. And because I designed the program, I um, am continually running these days workshops for teachers on helping them to utilise the framework that I created to create their own a 21st century skills program. What are the elements that you prioritise in your approach? Um, in my approach with teachers, a lot of it, would, certainly within the IB, is, is structural. So we're looking at a framework of skills, communication skills, collaboration skills, 
information literacy, media literacy, creativity, critical thinking, computational thinking, a whole range of these skills. And what we're trying to do, what I'm trying to do with teachers is help them to embed those skills within their teaching. So the teachers are focusing on both the, the process that the children are going through to learn as well as the content of what they are learning. The book is about failing and how to fail well. And it's interesting, just one of the endorsements that's come from the Director of Studies at Harrow School in London. Yes. Um, is, is your focus necessarily, in this instance he was uh, talking about um, underachieving boys at the school, is, mm-hmm. that, is that typically your focus? We all need to learn to fail, um, but typically is that where you've done quite a bit of work? Well, it, I guess it depends on the school themselves. Uh, that, that is the commonly the group of students I get called in to work with, which is the group who are kind of on the cusp and they and often they have great ability and they have um, there's nothing wrong with them academically it's just that they're underperforming through a motivational barrier or a strategy barrier or a skills barrier they just don't really know how to study well and as soon as I teach them some some basic skills process skills of how to learn more effectively then they can usually push their performance over the particular barrier and they become um, much higher achievers. Why focus on failing well? Why is that your starting point? Well, because um, I guess in in general terms, failure is a necessary part of success. You know, any successful person has had to go through a lot of failure. But the the particular focus I have is that it comes from the masters you mentioned that I did in two thousand and eight, which was a study of a hundred students in Hamilton School. And I I was trying to link their resilience with their academic success. And I wasn't getting anywhere until I started asking questions around failure. Now, I defined failure as when you set a goal and you don't achieve it. So for a child at school, it might be when they they sit a test and they don't get the mark they want or they they, um, hand in an assignment, they don't get the grade they want. Or it could be in sports or relationships or whatever. They've set a goal and they haven't achieved it. And what I discovered was that the way in which the very top academic students handled that, dealt with that kind of failure, was completely different to the way the very bottom academic students handled that situation. And that led me to create my failing well model. Talk us through its key points. Um, well, the, the, the key point, I mean, the best way to describe it is to just give an example. Um, Imagine that you have uh, your child is sitting a test at school and the test has, say, 10 questions in it. And before they sit the test, they've got this thing in mind that they're thinking, I'm going to do really well. I'm going to get 9 or 10 out of 10 out of this. I know I can. And they do the test and they don't get 9 or 10 out of 10. Maybe they get 7 out of 10 correct. Now, someone in that situation who fails well will look at the 7 out of 10 they got correct and think, well, that's not too bad. At least I passed. And then they will look at the three questions they got wrong and they will go back and reprocess those questions and they'll rewrite the answers to those questions and they'll take that to the teacher and say, are these now correct? And if they get that approval, then they will might even do some extra questions like the ones they got wrong so that they, then they feel that they have, they've learnt the maximum they can from that test situation. They've then, they can put it behind them and move on. And that's failing well, reprocessing the things you got wrong. Now, someone in the same situation who fails badly will, in getting the same result, will look at the 7 out of 10 they got right and think to themselves, well, that's good, I passed. And then they'll put it behind them. 
and they won't ever go back and reprocess the questions they got wrong. And that was a, a huge difference, a 100% difference between the top academic achievers and the bottom ones in the work that I did. Are there reasons behind one approach or the other? Um, I'm sure there are, there are lots of reasons, and some of it is to do with self-confidence. Some of it is to do with, uh, with knowing how. Um, some of it is a self, could be a self-esteem issue. But I usually focus on uh, just building the skills, just giving children the opportunity to notice that reprocessing failure is actually a very useful strategy for achieving any goals that they have. This is something they can bring often from um, unintended parental feedback or, or teacher feedback sometimes, isn't it? This, this desire to please, and you start to see the result as being all about pleasing someone else rather than learning for, for learning's sake. Uh, Absolutely. Which means we all have to be careful of the way we give feedback and the way we react to you know, those bald results, whatever, whatever they're being, however they're being assessed. Yes, and I think it's very important in families to, to get very clear about what you mean by success. You know, what gets the highest praise in the family? Is it grades, scores, marks, or is it determination and perseverance and uh, what I call failing well? Is it, is it learning from your mistakes? You know, if we focus too much on the grade, scores, marks, this is what produces the, the children who um, are not interested in the process. They're not interested in going back and utilising the formative feedback from teachers. They just focus on the grade, scores, marks, and when they don't get the mark they want, they, they, they fail badly, they, um, they get traumatised they are, are totally concerned with um, looking good What are some of the, the um, symptoms of failing badly? What sort of behaviours might you see from a student? Well, the, when someone's failing well, they are admitting their mistakes, and they're reprocessing and they're going back and having another go. When someone's failing badly in the same situation, they're more likely to blame the school or the system. They'll say, you know, it's a dumb school, it's a dumb system, how can I possibly succeed? They might well blame other people. They'll say, it's my teacher's fault, it's my parents' fault, it's my friend's fault, they put me off. They may well... Um, pretend that everything's going right. In my study, I had a group of students who who were um, not doing well at all academically, and yet they were saying, everything's fine, everything's fine, just ignore it, it'll go away. They, another another thing I saw quite a bit was adding drama to failure, you know, um, making the adding hysteria to it, making a small failure into an enormous failure so it's too big to deal with. And avoidance is another risk, isn't it? Avoiding, yeah. the, avoiding the possibility of failure. Yes, and that, that's, the, that's the, the last thing that I found, certainly, was that there were some students who would never, ever do anything that, where they risk the possibility of failure. And if a teacher ever made them do an option or a subject or something that they, they thought there was a possibility of failure, as soon as possible they would drop it and go back to what they were already totally competent at. So... In practice at school, you will see these behaviours. You may see um, little progress between um, different marks or scores or attempts to do something if it's a physical activity. Um, the same mistakes happening. Mm. What of the um, what of the focus on grades and marks actually? Can this be if a child is not or a student is not well prepared? with the kind of resilience that you're talking about. Is this actually a feature of our systems? We seem to assess and mark just about 
everything, you know, and, and we've had lots of feedback now about kids learning how to navigate a, a qualification system, but mm. not necessarily learning learning much along the way or learning the content along the way. Um, if Given the reality of grades and marks, is, is there a mm. way to talk to them about that? Is there a way to say, look, that is not the end game of what we've just been doing here? Well, absolutely. Um, I mean, we are in education systems that, that value grades and marks and scores, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's not a bad idea. The best education systems in the world always have hurdles to jump over, and the hurdles are there for a reason, to get students to put in the effort necessary to achieve. And it's not a bad thing, but it's just the obsession with grades which is the problem. So what I try and do is I try and focus students on more intrinsic motivators because the extrinsic ones are not the ones that you can use when you're in a high-pressure situation. You know, focus on a on a future career or a future um, university study or the grades or the qualification isn't the sort of thing that gets you over the hurdle when you're, when you're feeling like you're not performing well and when you've got a big pressure situation in front of you. Focusing on um, your how you're going to feel when you do achieve that. Focusing on treating academic work as a challenge to push yourself um, over to see what you're capable of. But most importantly, focusing on academic work as the opportunity to practice a certain set of skills. And these are the skills of effective learning. And it's so, you know, I've been doing this for so long. 250,000 students so far have been through my courses in the last 24 years. And it's amazing every single time that I run a course for students, the number of students who look at that my idea and they say, well, that, that's really interesting because I've failed in the past and I've never understood why. Now you show me some skills, some just simple things, effective note-making, concentration, focus, motivation, um, study skills, all these kind of things, and they suddenly have a, a rationale for why they might have failed in the past and a set of strategies they can apply in the future. That's, and that's the, practical, the practical strategies. What's the deeper stuff you've come across? Because one of the um, sort of um, legs to the stool is resilience. And, and what are you seeing with resilience? Is, is, is that a barrier sometimes to being able to adopt and apply some of the steps you're talking about because mentally or emotionally something's getting in the way. Yes, for sure. Um, strategies of resilience don't necessarily correlate with academic high performance. This is one of the things I discovered. Um, but it is very advantageous for students to learn how to cope with difficulty and how to get themselves over challenges. So... I guess, I mean, from a parent's point of view, what we've got to make sure we're doing with our children is we are, for example, teaching them caution, not fear, not passing over our fears to our children. We're helping them to do the things that they're afraid of, helping them to, to support them to feel that they can do things that maybe they thought they can't. All the work of people like Martin Seligman on practical optimism, looking at your explanatory style, the way you talk to yourself inside your head, the way you set yourself up in, in situations, are becoming a good uh, judge of your own actions. Um, that is, those are vital parts of the resilience model. And... I mean, I had a really good example in my own family just a little while ago. My daughter found this old, old photograph 
of when she was about two years old. And there she is, she's standing on a, on a wall and she's got her hands out and my wife is standing in front of her and my daughter's just about to jump into my wife's arms off this wall. And at the bottom she's written, my mum teaching me how to be brave. And, you know, that's this kind of thing, teaching our kids to be brave, teaching our kids to that, that obstacles are things that you can overcome. If you, if you um, maintain an optimistic outlook and you take control of the things you can control, these are all parts of an overall resilience model. What is your comment on learned helplessness as it is described? How does it manifest and do you see a lot of it in your work? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you if you look at the opposite of resilience, the opposite of resilience has got to be a combination of depression and despair. And those things often uh, go with a feeling of helplessness and a feeling of hopelessness. And so if we're trying to develop a resilient model, we've got to deal with that. Well, the hopelessness thing, that is... Um, we can utilise all the Martin Seligman stuff on learned optimism to help us um, move ourselves more into an optimistic frame uh, mindset, a way of um, looking accurately at what is going on and keeping ourselves positively focused on the future. But learned optimism doesn't work in all situations because... The, the, the perpetual optimist has three areas where they don't necessarily work well. One is in estimating risk. Optimists often underestimate the risk of things. The other is in estimating their own ability level because optimists often overestimate their ability level. And the third one is in taking responsibility for their own mistakes. So if we take the, the Martin Seligman learned helplessness model, which he flipped around to learned optimism, that's good for helping children to overcome um, hopelessness. The helplessness thing seems to be more associated with control. And this is um, a locus of control work, uh, Julian Rotter from the 60s, that what we want to help children do is to uh, create more of an internal locus of control. Now, what happens at school is that you think about your average kid at school. What do they actually have control over? You know, they can't control who teaches them, where they teach them, when they teach them, what they teach them, who sets the tests, who marks the tests. There is very, very few things that are actually in a child's control. And some of them can get to the point where they're feeling totally helpless and they just become passive. But what I point out to kids is that there are two things they can control in any situation at school. One is the amount of effort they put in, that's totally in their control, and the second one is how they apply that effort. In other words, what strategies they use for time management, for self-motivation, for simple things like note-making, for developing understanding, for retaining understanding, for um, studying for exams, for all the, the, what we call the 21st century skills. Those are the things that children actually have control over. And so if they learn the best strategies for learning, then they manage to push themselves out of that helplessness state into a feeling that they actually have control of the vital factors that will go with academic success. Where do you start? I've heard you've used juggling as a learning tool. I'm not yes. sure if that happens at the start or somewhere along the line. But where would you start with, um, uh, we'll talk about age groups in a minute, but where would you start with a typical class? 
Well, it depends on the purpose of the course, but in like I have courses focused on passing exams and I have courses focused on resi- developing resilience. But in general, you've got to start with purpose. You've got to start with why. You know, some children are not performing well simply because they don't understand why. What is the purpose of schooling? What is the point of it? And I always try and make the point that the, the only thing a good education will give you is more choices in your life. But more choices are worth having. And so we start from there, get them to actually reflect on their present performance and get them to work out for themselves the areas that they realise they are not doing well in, the things that they would like to learn how to do, how to make study notes or how to remember well or how to manage time well, how to overcome distractions, you know, how to overcome procrastination. Those are the big areas. And then I tend to move to um, a motivational model as helping children to realise that the suggestions they give themselves inside their mind are the things that set them up most for achieving or not achieving their goals. And this is where the juggling comes in. And it's fascinating because I've done this for so many years and every time I do it, Um, I'll say to kids, so we've developed this idea of suggestion, so now I'm going to test this out with you. So in order to test it out, I have to give you something to learn, which might be a bit of a challenge. So what are we going to do is in the next 10 minutes, I'm going to teach you how to juggle. And I open up this bag, and it's got a thousand juggling balls in it, and they realize I'm actually serious, and their jaws drop, and more than half of them instantly say to themselves, well, I can't juggle. And I say to them, did you notice what you just said? You know, what you did was you made a suggestion to yourself that this was going to be impossible. And that's actually not a particularly helpful way to operate. But I mean, I'm not suggesting that you move straight from I can't juggle to I can juggle because you haven't proved that to yourself yet either. What I want you to do is I want you to notice your internal dialogue, the way you talk to yourself, and practice turning every I can't into an I haven't yet. Because when you say I can't, you're suggesting you never ever will. When you change that to I haven't yet, you're opening up the possibility that you might. And all your mind needs is the possibility of success to create more success. Then, So then I start them off with the juggling. We use visualization a lot. Visualization is a useful tool for setting up the pattern in your brain for what you want to achieve. We break complex tasks down into simple steps. We build a belief system that, that children can do more than they think they can. And suddenly they learn to juggle. And in 15 minutes, I can get most kids at school from the position of believing that juggling is impossible to actually realising that it's perfectly possible and if they haven't quite got it yet, a little bit more time and a little bit more practice that they will have it. And that's a magical moment. They've suddenly realised that by changing their internal model, what's going on inside their head, they've created success for themselves. How can parents help that become a habit from quite an early age? Well, I guess it's, it's listening I mean, you can't listen to what's going on inside a child's head, but you can listen. Usually they're very vocal. And I, I mean, the simplest thing is listen for those can'ts. And every time you hear a can't, just say to the child, well, is that seriously can't or is it just that you haven't done it yet? And kids are really pragmatic. You know, they're, they're not interested in the theory. They'll say to them, well, I guess, I guess, I guess I haven't done it yet. That's true. And the instant they say, I haven't done it yet, they're opening up the possibility that they might. Let's talk about that fail word again, because yes. it's an ugly four-letter word that begins with F. <laughs> and 
do you come do you come across kids who have an actual utter conceptual aversion to it, whether they use that word or another word? Is there a problem with the way our societies approach failure, which as you see which as you see it is simply a stepping stone toward an inevitable stepping stone towards success in most cases. But do we have a problem with the word or a problem with the feelings that we project around it? Yes, I think that we do. I mean you know, I, I often break the word fail down. I say F A I L, what does that stand for? Well it stands for first attempt in learning. You know, um, I, I deliberately use the word failure because I think we've got to get rid of the emotional baggage that goes with failure. We've got to realise that in order to be successful, every single successful person has always had to go through a lot of failure. It's actually a necessary part of success. And so we can use role models for that. We can use um, other models. But I think that helping children to realise that failure is a verb, not a noun. There is no such person who is a failure. It's a process, and it's a process you have to go through in order to succeed. It's interesting, you know, having worked in so many different countries, the, the different reactions to failure in different cultures and different countries. I was in uh, Denmark a year or two ago running my parents' seminar and talking about failure and the, the, the idea of failing well and the reaction to failure. And these parents are sitting there going, yep, yep, we do that. Yep, yeah, we do that. Yep, yep, we do that. It was nothing new for them <laughs> at all. And apparently the Danes are notorious for allowing their children, or insisting that their children take on great responsibility for their own actions and allowing them amazing freedom and failing well is something that's just a natural part of their culture. It was nothing new. The, the seminar was kind of like, oh, yeah, we've done that. Whereas I go to another country, uh, China would be a good example, where the concept of failure the word failure has enormous emotional impact, and they, they're a lot, in a lot of cases trying to avoid the idea of failure. But the interesting thing is, as soon as I introduce a model of failing well, they take it on board instantly, straight away. It's as if in their mind they have the failure can only be seen in a bad way. As soon as I point to failing badly and failing well, they all go, oh, yes, that's a good idea. Yes, we can do that. And the change is instant. Exam and, season is looming, Lance. Yes. Uh, and key pointers for preparation, uh, not worrying, not obsessing over failure. What, what is your basic approach, your strategies for preparing for exams? Well, the, the basic strategy is time management. You know, two months out from a major exam, kids need to sit down, preferably with someone who can help them, and work through a good exam timetable schedule. Get all the exams in right, decide how many hours they're going to study for every day, give themselves a break, but plan out the whole two months before an exam. Then they've got to uh, stick to their schedule. So to stick to their schedule, they've got to learn how to utilise the, 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 the kind of the purpose of examinations and schooling to help them over the procrastination hurdles. They've got to use self-motivational strategies to keep them working. But probably more importantly, they've got to know how to study. So many kids have no idea how to study. They look at a big pile of books and a big pile of notes and they think, what do I do now? Do I just read them? Do, how do I, they haven't learned how to summarise, create key point summaries, and then turn those summaries into real understanding, and then store, remember, remember conceptually and remember factually. 
And it's a whole series of processes that are very, very simple. But unfortunately, in our schools, we don't tend to teach those skills as specific skills. We assume that the good kids will pick up those skills on the way and the the other kids just won't. And that's just not our problem. And I think that's a terrible um, you, uh, I think it's a terrible thing that happens in education that we don't teach the skills of effective learning. Lance King, well, on his book The Importance of Failing Well, we were speaking uh, a little while ago. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.